you were to ask the average person what the message of Jesus was all about, you'd probably get the response of love. Jesus came to show us the way of love, came to teach us to love God entirely, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true, something we need to hear. However, Jesus came to teach on more than just love. In fact, he had a lot of difficult, hard things to tell people. And when we say hard things, not so much hard to understand, but hard to accept for some. For example, we could point to Matthew 10.34. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring, to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Matthew 10.25, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Or Luke 14.26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, then he cannot be my disciple. You see what I mean by some hard sayings. And we read in the Gospels that people were frequently shocked and astonished by some of the things that Jesus said. So much so, they they just left him. They stopped following him. When Jesus got serious about speaking about sin, people didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear that they had a problem. They needed to turn, repent from something. And so they left. People actually walked out on the preaching of Jesus. It doesn't sound very seeker-friendly, but it happened. Yet today, though, there are many preachers who seemingly have learned from Christ's mistakes. You see, when Jesus first came on the scene, he was all about love and miracles. And so he had these huge crowds, tens of of thousands of people. But then when he started talking about sin, hell, judgment, the true cost of discipleship, they all split. All those people left. And he was left with very few people. So wait, doesn't that mean though, if you just drop the hard things, that the crowds will stay? And the answer is, well, pretty much yes. Yes, they will. And there are many preachers today who simply skip the hard sayings of Jesus. They won't talk about any of the difficult parts of the Bible. It can be divisive. It can be unpopular. People might get offended. People might leave. And we don't want that. So just skip the hard stuff. And so how many churches today that you know of that they will never mention sin or hell, judgment, repentance, the true cost of discipleship, even though all these things came from the mouth of Jesus himself. We call ourselves Christians. It means little Christs. We follow him, but they they won't talk about that. It's like they want the Lord, but without his teaching. They want his popularity, not his rejection. Skip the hard stuff. Hopefully you can see the problem with this. What's our goal as the church? Our goal is to make disciples of him. And we're talking about real disciples. Just going to church doesn't make you a disciple. We're after true disciples, disciples built to last, disciples built off the truth of the word. And, And to make real disciples, you know, those hard sayings become quite indisposable. They have a way of bringing out the true from the false. What you have to realize is when Jesus said difficult things to people, to tell them about hard or harsh realities, but they were nonetheless true, his goal was not to condemn people in hatred. He wasn't just trying to be mean or harsh. He was trying to instruct and warn people in love. Take hell for instance. Do you know that Nobody speaks more about hell in the Bible than Jesus. And did you know that Jesus talks more about hell than heaven? 
And trust me, it was just as unpopular back then. But he still spoke the truth about it. Why? Is he trying to be mean? He's trying to, to shake people, to warn them in love. So you're driving along a steep, windy road of the PCH. It's late at night. It's raining heavy. You can barely see. And just all of a sudden, you notice the road up ahead is washed out. And you slam your brakes as hard as you can. And you just barely stop in time. And you, you're saved. You would have plunged right off to your death. Obviously, you've got to head back down the mountain find another way. So down you go. But as you're heading down the mountain, you see another car coming up. And where are they headed for? They're headed for that washed out cliff. So what do you do? Well, hopefully, you jump out of your car, even in the rain. You start waving your hands, trying to get their attention. You've got to try and warn them that they're headed for peril. And they may drive by. They may think you're a crazy person. They may ignore your warning. But to do nothing is more like hatred than love. This is why Jesus came and he warned people. Even though it's hard, even though it's unpopular, he had to warn in love. And many people, as we do the same, they they might leave, they might call us crazy, they may not heed the warning. We can't control that. But we can't skip the hard parts. We have to tell people what Jesus said, whether it's popular or not. And that's, that's what we find today at the end of Mark chapter 9. So you can open your Bibles now to the Gospel of Mark, the end of chapter 9. You'll find a Bible in the pew in front of you as well. End of Mark chapter 9. I've got to say, this is another reason that expository preaching is so useful. It's where you're preaching through a book of the Bible, verse by verse. And you don't have the option of skipping the hard stuff. You're, just, you're going verse by verse, and you're going to run into it sooner or later, and you just have to deal with it. Like in the next couple of weeks, Matthew or Mark 10, what does he talk about? Divorce. You can't skip it. You have to deal with the hard stuff, and that's what we find at the end of Mark 9. It's a real one-two punch, verses 38 or four, excuse me, 42 through 50. First, in verses 42 through 48, Jesus talks about something that's very unpopular, and that is hell. And then the last few verses, 49 and 50, not something that's that unpopular. It's just very difficult to understand. Just about every commentator I was reading agreed that these last two verses in Mark are, hands down, the hardest verses to interpret in all of Mark's gospel. So, look, if there's ever a passage you want to skip, it's got to be this one. Can't we just skip this and move on? It's just difficult, it's hard. But no, we can't. These words should not be skipped because even though they're challenging, they've proved to be very rich and rewarding. Here, Jesus is actually imparting some very critical lessons on true discipleship, and we don't want to skip them. You know by now, Jesus, he's on the road to Jerusalem. By the time we get to Mark 11, it's a triumphal entry. It's his last week of life. So we're, we're close. It's just crunch time. And with the little time he has left, he's, he's pouring it into his 12 disciples, giving them some final lessons on true discipleship on the way. And along these lines here in Mark chapter 9, we've seen Jesus straighten them out. Just before this, we caught the disciples on the way and they were arguing with one another about what? About which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus had to straighten them out. It's like, guys, that's not what following me is like. You want to follow me? It's like more like being a child, a servant. True discipleship is more about serving others than being served. And then after that, we find the disciples trying to stop a man from casting out demons in Christ's name because... He wasn't following them. 
And Christ had to straighten them out again and let them know that true disciples are identified by their allegiance to Christ. No one else, but their allegiance to him. And you have to be careful to discern between the true and the false. And this thread continues in the text we have today, only it's more pronounced. True and false disciples, they're out there. They exist, true and the false. And this passage, we learn what identifies the true and the false and what becomes of the true and the false. And it's really true. This is a passage you're not going to find preached on by the, the televangelists, the TV preachers. I actually checked. I went on some of their websites and I couldn't find this text anywhere. This is one that's skipped. But we want to tune in because Jesus said it. It's recorded. He wants us to hear it. And these are words of life. So let's begin by reading this, this passage through. We're going to start off this way, Mark 9, just so you can see the whole thing in one shot, starting at verse 42 through the end of the chapter. Mark 9, 42. He goes on to say, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So needless to say, we find a challenging passage. But in reality, it's one that's teaching on discipleship. This is teaching on discipleship. This is part of the expanding picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus and what it brings. And so we want to do our best to decipher these sayings of Jesus and apply them for all they're worth. And what we're going to find here is four marks of true disciples. Four marks of true disciples from this passage today. The first of which is is this, purity. Number one, the purity of true disciples. The purity of true disciples. And, and look again, we're going to go backwards, back to verse 42. He says again, verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Let's start off. We're introduced to this concept of stumbling, which happens throughout the passage. You can probably guess he's not talking about literally, you know, sticking your foot out to try and trip a little kid. It's not what he's talking about. This word for stumble is scandalizo. It originally referred to catching something in a snare, to trapping something. It came to take on a figurative meaning where you were ensnaring people spiritually. You're entrapping them. You're causing someone to morally stumble or to fall into sin. The stumbling that Jesus warns against is that of leading other people into sin. And at the far end of that spectrum, leading someone into unbelief. This is stumbling. 
And who are the potential subjects of this stumbling? He says they're the little ones. And it, hopefully it's clear he's not talking about actual children, although they would be included. We learned last week Jesus is using children to represent believers. He makes that clear again in verse 42. He says, little ones who believe. These are representatives of believers. We're talking about believers. If, if anything, especially Christians who are young and immature, who are prone to stumbling. In all, this is a, a one verse, very strong warning against stumbling other Christians into sin, even worse, into unbelief. And to beware. You don't want to go there. You don't want to be the wolf in sheep's clothing who, who takes down other believers. Who are these wolves? These are people who they claim Christ by name, but they live a life of sin. And then they entice other Christians into sin to joining them by word or deed. And I've seen people like this who instead of turning from their sin, they've got a guilty conscience and they, they would rather drag people down into the muck with them. Makes them feel a little bit better because misery loves company. And these wolves are also spotted by their outright malicious attacks on the faith of others. You've got a young believer and they're on fire for the Lord, but their flame is still small. It's just starting. And so these people, they come along, they take a wet blanket and they throw it on the flame. They do this by ridiculing the faith, persecuting the faith, trying to poke holes in the faith, trying to incur some doubt in the faith. I think we know that liberal colleges and seminaries today, it's the breeding ground for this type of stumbling. I should have known better, but as a, as a brand new Christian in college at UC Berkeley, I enrolled for a religious studies class. Not a good idea. And the professor, her entire goal was to try and to basically tear down the faith of all the young freshmen in her class. But people like this, stumblers like this, Jesus says, need to, need to beware to watch out because it says it would be better for them to have a heavy millstone hung around their neck and be cast into the sea. Not sure if you've ever seen a millstone. Just picture a, a round coffee table, like a disc made of solid stone, and now double it in size. Because he's talking about a big millstone. Literally, it's, it's the millstone of a donkey. Which well, all that means is this is a millstone that's so big that a man can't turn it. You need a, a donkey or a beast of burden to turn the thing. They use these millstones to pulverize grain into flour. And he's talking about the big one. This is the biggest of the millstones. Just, just picture this. You're out at sea. You're on a wooden sailing vessel. You're by the edge. Somehow you find one of these millstones tied to your neck. And somehow you find yourself being pushed overboard. So what happens next? You probably piece that together. You're going down. There's no treading water here. There's no hanging on. There's no hope. You go down. Now, here's the thing. If you can picture that happening to you, that doesn't sound good. But Jesus says, that's better. Did you get that? He's saying that's the better option. You're thinking, well, how could that be the better option? That sounds terrible. But he's saying that fate would be the better fate compared to the fate of the person who stumbles other believers. That fate is worse, and you don't want that. There's meant to be some shock value to these words. He's just trying to communicate how seriously God takes what? Purity. And the purity of true disciples. 
Jesus is revealing that God holds in the highest regard the purity of, of his children. And if you oppose that, it's not going to go well for you. Now, I want to throw in here, just, just so you know, Jesus, he's not saying that this is some sort of unpardonable sin. Because in reality, we've all done this. We've all done this, inadvertently or not. We've all, at some point, as sinners, we've played a role in maybe tempting others or leading others to our own sin, be it our spouses, our children, whomever. I mean, we're, we're sinners too. And if you, if you sin like this, you deal with it like all sin. You repent and you're restored before the Lord. But, but he's trying to make a point here with shock value. He's communicating that holiness, it really matters to God. It's pretty serious stuff. God himself, he's pure. He's free from sin. And he wants his children to be just like him. And so if you live opposing the holiness of his children, if you make this your your way of life, you're known by this, then you need to watch out. You need to beware what's coming to you and turn before it's too late. True disciples are meant to be pure and holy. and, And far from stumbling others, we should be promoting the holiness, the growth of one another. This is true when it comes to the holiness of others, verse 42. This is true when it comes to the holiness of ourselves. God not only wants us not to stumble others and lead them into sin, he also wants us not to stumble ourselves. And this gets us into verse 43. He's really continuing this theme of purity, but now it's just about ourselves. So let's read this section again, starting at verse 43. They're all kind of parallel, so we're going to read them all. He says, verse 43, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell and to the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And what we find here, it's one of the most shocking and repulsive statements that Jesus ever made, at least to those in the world. They don't want any part of this. But these are actually words of life to the discerning, because you don't have to to go there. Now, first, let me point out this. Verse 44, verse 46, you see those brackets probably around them? They've got brackets around your verse. Just quickly explain that. That's because these two verses weren't in the original manuscripts. They were clearly added by a later scribe. He's trying to turn the heat up on this passage even more by taking verse 48 and throwing it back up there a couple times. But these additions, they made their way later into the Catholic Bible, which is called the Latin Vulgate, But we don't go off of that. We go off of the earliest manuscripts of the Bible, not the Latin Vulgate. So those verses are in brackets, indicate they're not actually part of the original text. So just so you know. But anyway, the point is clear. The point, look, if you think it's easy to lead other people astray, you're right. The only thing easier is leading yourself astray. But beware of that, because that comes with just a high penalty. He says, if your hand, foot, or eye causes you to stumble, cut it off. And we're still obviously talking about stumbling into sin. So he's saying, don't let the members of your body lead you into sin. If they do, get rid of them. 
Now, I trust that you can gather Jesus. He's using hyperbole and metaphor. Just in case, though, let's be clear, he's not being literal. He's not talking about literally cutting off your arms and legs. I hope that's obvious, but just in case, you know, self-mutilation was forbidden in the Old Testament. He's not going against that. And, and also, cutting off your body parts doesn't solve the sin problem. Even someone with no arms, no legs, and no eyes can still be the most angry, lustful, greedy, bitter sinner around. Now, that's not where sin resides. To the contrary, sin, it's an internal problem that is expressed outwardly. Your body parts are merely the instruments that your sinful heart uses to get its desires. And the real problem is is your heart. And you know what? Who do we learn that from? We learn that from Jesus himself. I mean, just humor me and turn one page back in Mark. And look at Mark chapter 7. Maybe two pages. Mark 7, remember covering this? The Pharisees, they were so concerned about cleansing the outside, making the outside all shiny. So you look good on the outside, but Jesus is like, that's not what it's about. Chapter 7, verse 15. He says, there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are that which defile the man. And what's he talking about? Verse 21. He says, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed. The evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So the force of what he's saying back in Mark 9, you can go back to Mark 9, the force of what he's saying should be clear. As always, he uses the physical to illustrate the spiritual. And the issue is not your hands, your feet, and your eyes. That's not your problem. These are only listed because through them, so many of our sins are expressed. Our hands speak of all the things we do that we should not. And our feet speak of all the places we go that we should not. And our eyes speak of all the lusts we have that we should not. And in essence, if you're stumbling into sin because of what you do or where you go or what you look at, then you need to cut those things off. He's talking about a radical spiritual surgery. You may know, Civil War, <clears throat> gangrene, big deal. And if a soldier had gangrene, they would often amputate the leg to save his life. And it's a good thing, saving his life. And that's what Christ is talking about, spiritually speaking. To follow Christ, you have to cut off all sources of sin in your life. And remember what he said. He said, follow me. But first, he said, deny yourself. Deny yourself. And that includes those sinful desires that still reside within. That's a part of following him. So whatever practices that were precious to your old life, it's time to get rid of them. And presumably, you come to Christ with a genuine faith and a salvation. But you, have, you still have an old way of life attached to you. You've got this baggage, these old practices. And now you're a Christian, but you're trying to hang on to the old self. And the point is, if these old things are still leading you into sin, then you have to cut them off. This is a radical discipleship. Either, either choose to forsake sin and follow Christ or don't. But there's no playing the middle when it comes to this. 
Jesus is giving us a shocking statement in order to convey an appropriate kill or be killed mentality when it comes to sin. You don't fool around with sin. Take prompt action to remove it. Take decisive action to remove it. And take continual action to remove it. All these verbs here are in the present tense. It's not a one-time thing. We are continually cutting off sin as it regrows in our life. This is a lifelong battle against our own flesh, sin and temptation, daily turning, repenting, cutting off. Our sin is like a cancer, and it keeps coming back. And so every day we find ourselves cutting off new growths. Otherwise, it's going to consume you. What's at stake here is your soul. These shocking words highlight the incomparable value of the soul. Physically, it's nothing more important than your life. So if you had to lose a leg to save your life, you would. Spiritually, and in all, nothing is more important than your eternal life. So if you have to deny your sinful self in order to follow Jesus to eternal life, then, then, then so be it. I do want you to understand, though, that this is not to say that as Christians stumble into sin, we find ourselves dangling over the pits of hell again. That's not the case. If you know Christ, you have returned from your sins, you've you've placed your faith in him, not of your works, but of his work on the cross, you you know him by faith and you're saved, then what does Romans 8 say? There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no need to fear these consequences. Jesus saved us from this penalty of sin by his work on the cross. And even though we still stumble, we're forgiven. That doesn't make it okay. We still turn and follow him, but but we're forgiven. So Christians never need to fear hell. Ever. There's no condemnation. However, this passage most certainly is teaching that false disciples need to fear hell. For false believers, this is a real warning. For true believers, kind of kick in the pants, you know, get back, you know, get on with it. But for false believers, it's a real warning. If you choose to follow your sin over the Lord, this is where that path leads. This is where that goes. This, the path of sin, where does it end? He says, beware this, turn to him. For false believers, this is a warning. But for true believers, this passage once more highlights the purity of true disciples. True disciples are marked by a passion for purity and a radical holiness that will deal with sin at all costs. So look, we, we know we're all imperfect sinners as we seek to follow the Lord. But, but the point is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're on the path. You're following. You're cutting off. That's the mark of true disciples. So you need to ask yourself some questions. It's time to, to test yourself. Are you doing things you shouldn't be doing? Are you engaged in hobbies or activities or habits that you don't want others to know about? Are there places your feet carry you that you really have no business being in? Bars, drinking parties, places of temptation. It doesn't always have to be some dirty place. Just being alone with a member of the opposite sex could be a dangerous place of temptation for you. So don't go there. And are there things that you are seeing that you shouldn't? What are you letting into your mind through your eyes? What desires and lusts are bouncing around your mind? 
Would you be proud or ashamed if we had a list of the last ten movies or TV shows you watched? You know, we're wired to the TV and the internet. It's a snare for many, but are you indulging in the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, or do you turn from them and repent and go away? Whatever you're doing that you shouldn't be, this passage is saying, if you're a true disciple, it's time to cut them off. There's no playing around with sin. Cut these off. True disciples are marked by purity. We're all in progress. We're all on the path. We're not perfect. But make sure you're on the right path, the path of discipleship, the path of dealing with sin as it arises. Because you don't want to be on the other path. The path of living in sin, unrepentant, habitual, no turning from it. Jesus says that path will take you to hell. And you'll notice in this passage, he says a lot about hell. And I'll tell you what, we're not going to skip it. But we are going to save it. We're going to come back. So we're not going to deal with that right now, but we will come back to it. Just want you to know. For now, though, I want us to move on and get to verse 49. And here we find the second mark of true disciples. First, we found the purity of true disciples. Secondly, related but different, the purification of true disciples. The purification of true disciples. This is a strange verse. Verse 49. He says after this, For everyone will be salted with fire. Now, if you're like me, you read this and you're like, what does that mean? What does that mean? Salted with fire. We don't talk like that. We don't use salt as a verb like that, especially in relation to fire. It's like, what what does this mean? Clearly, something is missing for us modern readers that was apparent to them. So we got to bridge this gap. This verse, 49, it's only found in Mark. And I think the key, though, is seeing where fire and salt come together in Scripture. And the answer to that is sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, the Israelites are instructed to include salt in their sacrifices. And the verse goes on to say that the salt, it's representative of God's lasting covenant. And what does salt do? It preserves things. It makes them last. So salt being added to these sacrifices signified a person's lasting loyalty to God and his covenant. The salt, in a way, consecrated the sacrifice, purified it, set it apart as a true, lasting memorial to God and his covenant. And so this is where I think Jesus is drawing the connection. I think he's saying we, we're the sacrifice. We are the sacrifice. Our bodies, our lives are the sacrifice on the altar, which would be very fitting because we know that's true. Romans 12.1, what does it say? Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Our lives are the sacrifices to God, and so we're to be salted. We're the ones receiving the salt. Salt is being dumped on us. And this salt, it's consecrating us. It's purifying us. This salt is setting our lives apart as sacrifices, lasting sacrifices to God. The catch is that we're not being salted with salt. We're being salted with fire. And this would be the fires of purification. These are the flames of trials and tribulations, sufferings and persecutions, which come upon believers to test them, to purify them. 
These are the flames that you sign up for when you follow Jesus. Remember? Follow me. Deny yourself. And then he said, take up your cross. If you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. The cross, that's an instrument of suffering. So what do you think he meant by that? And what do you expect? These fires of testing, they're promised all throughout Scripture, actually. This is actually nothing new. Remember 1 Peter, we, we, a couple years ago, we went through that. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. This should be normal for us. God sends or allows the fires of testing to come upon us. And you think, well, how would he do that? Why would he do that to his own children? The answer is because he loves them. He cares about their purity. This fire purifies. There's a good type of fire, there's a bad type of fire. The bad type of fire torments and consumes people. And that's the fire he's talking about in hell. It's not a good fire. But there is a good fire where it doesn't consume you, it purifies you. Like refining gold, it just burns away all the, all the junk in your life. And true disciples can expect God to exert a purifying influence in their lives. It's going to purge away all things contrary to his will. God, he just said that you need to be purifying yourself, cutting things off. But you know what? Sometimes God will help you with that. And he'll send a little fire your way to help burn off some of those things you shouldn't be doing. He'll turn up the heat. And it's actually a good thing. True believers, though, you're going to endure. You will endure the trials and you will be purified. False believers, though, they're going to fall away. But true believers will be salted by suffering. It consecrates you, sanctifies you. It sets you apart. Your life is a lasting offering to God, worthy offering to him. Verse 49, look, it's a, it's a difficult statement, of course, but it appears to be validating a common New Testament theme. What does God care about the most in his children? Is it their happiness? Is it their health, their wealth, their prosperity? It's their holiness. He cares the most about their holiness. He says, I am holy, therefore you shall be holy. And so that's why he has designed suffering to sit in the path of discipleship and it will salt like fire everyone who passes through it, purifying them, sanctifying them, setting them apart. It's a hard thing. It's a difficult thing. It's not pleasant, but it's a good thing because it draws us closer to him. And as you endure, as you're made holier through your own efforts and his purifying trials, then you will be enabled to be a purifying force on the world. And this brings us to number three, the purpose of true disciples. These ones are shorter. Number three, the purpose of true disciples, getting into verse 50. He finishes and says, salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. So it's another difficult statement. This one's no easier. And we wonder, what does this mean? It appears that Jesus is, is like playing a game of word association. He was just talking about salt. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. And now it's like he's saying, hey, speaking of salt, salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, with what will you make it salty again? It's like he's playing off of this idea of salt, but he's making a distinct point. This is a separate point here. 
Here in verse 50, he's picking up on the domestic use of salt as opposed to the sacrificial use. Domestically, salt has many uses. We use it to flavor things. gives a distinct flavor to food. Salt also preserves food. In a world without refrigerators, you need salt to preserve your food. It makes it last. So like Jesus says, salt is good. And the connection he appears to be making this time is that now we, Christians, we're the salt. Now we're the salt, and it's our holiness that's going to have a preserving influence on a corrupt and decaying world. God has tasked his children, the church, with halting the spread of wickedness in the world through its example and influence, and that, that's what he's saying here. We are the salt of the earth. Verse 50 is another hard saying to interpret, but it seems to be actually parallel to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. On another occasion, he said this. Listen to this, Matthew 5.13. Speaking to disciples, he said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And then he says this, in parallel, this helps, he says, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16, he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that's the point. He's saying the same thing here in Mark chapter 9. As God's children, we are to be living pure lives. In our lives, we should have a distinct flavor to our lives. It's the flavor of holiness. And in addition, our lives are to have a preserving effect on the world. Through our example and our influence, we are to keep the world from a total corruption, providing a witness of God's light, God's way. And this is part of our purpose. This is part of the purpose of true disciples. One of the reasons God saved us. The world is watching you. And as a professing Christian, that can either be a good thing or a bad thing. If you're following the Lord, that's a great thing because you're leaving behind a witness and an influence that can have a profound effect on others. Your life testifies to the realities of Christ's claims that he really does change people and redeem them. And, and sanctify them. What kind of a witness do you have? As people watch you in your life, do they see Jesus come through? Or are you no different? Are you no different at all than the world? So the problem he's talking about here is when salt loses its saltiness. Then it becomes worthless. And salt itself, sodium chloride, it doesn't break down. It, it actually never loses its saltiness. But... In, in Palestine, impure salt lost its flavor because it was often diluted with, with dust, gypsum dust. So it became tasteless. It tasted like dust. So it was pretty worthless. And can you imagine going to the market and buying a salt shaker filled with dust? It's called worthless. But this is like the so-called Christian who does not live a distinct life. They're not salt. They're not light. They're not a city on a hill. Your life can't be distinguished from any unbeliever. There's no difference. You have no impact. You have no influence. So your salt that's lost its taste. You're good for nothing. 
when it comes to your mission, your purpose, which is to reach the world. Sinclair Ferguson said of this verse, quote, Unless we maintain the purity of our own lives and are purified by the flames of testing and remain faithful to Christ, our lives will have no preserving influence on this corrupt world. If we begin to fall into the same patterns of life as those characteristic of the world, we will never be able to point men and women to another world. End quote. It's absolutely true. We as Christians have a mission during our time on the earth. That's to reach the lost, to make disciples, to influence the world. We desperately want to see others redeemed. But if you're not living a redeemed life, then why should anyone believe your message of redemption? What do you really have to say? You become like saltless salt and you have no impact on the world. So instead, heed Christ's call to holiness and as you are sanctified, then you'll have an impact. You'll be a distinct salt, a preserving influence on the world and Christ will shine through you, hopefully leading others to the Lord. And finally, to finish, let's cover this last phrase. Number four, the peace of true disciples. I told you we'd find four marks of true disciples. We've got to do one more. Lastly, the peace of true disciples, which is actually very much related to the purpose of true disciples. The very end of verse 50, he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And this last phrase brings the whole discussion full circle. How did this whole little discourse begin? Jesus was talking to the disciples because they had been arguing about what? Which one of them was the greatest? They were so busy stepping on one another's necks to climb the ladder of greatness. But does that really look like it fits the picture of living as salt and light in a way different from the world? I mean, no, that that is the way of the world. They were acting like, like saltless salt. So Jesus tells them and he tells us that to follow him, it's not about being served, serving yourself. It's about serving others. His way, the way of discipleship, it's about regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Isn't that the way he led us and how he, what he did for us? And so if you follow him on his way, pride is replaced by humility and strife is replaced by peace. The way of Jesus produces true peace among his disciples. I mean, look, when everyone, if we're all just literally seeking to serve one another, if everyone in this room really actually treats one another like they're more important than ourselves, how could there ever be conflict? Conflict is just selfishness. But with Christ's way, there's peace. There's a real peace. And that peace is such an important part of our testimony to the world. That's got to be part of our salt, so to speak. Peace needs to be in there. We've been talking a lot about our impact on the world. But Christ said that our love for one another, our, our, our loving peace with one another, that's like one of the top marks to the world that, that we're genuine and Christ is the Lord. Remember what he said in John 13? Right before he died, he said, John 13:34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. And then he said this, By this... All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that's a big deal. The world is going to know that we're real and the Lord is real by our love for one another, by this supernatural peace. The disciples were consumed by selfish ambition. Instead, they should have been consumed 
by a selfless love that produces peace. And that's the salt the world really needs. Nothing seems to damage the testimony of the church so much as infighting and quarrels and internal strife. And if we're no different from the world when it comes to our personal holiness, and if we're no different from the world when it comes to our corporate relationships, then why should they care about our Savior? Why should they care about our redemption? We're no different. What's the point? But in the church, there should be this supernatural peace and love for one another that's so different from the world. And through this, as we share the gospel by God's grace, hopefully many will be drawn to the Lord of peace. Four marks of true disciples, the purity of true disciples, the purification of true disciples, the purpose of true disciples, the peace of true disciples. These are just some more essential marks of what it looks like to be on his way, the way of eternal life. We left out one thing, though. We left out one mark. It would be the peril of false disciples. The peril of false disciples. All throughout the text, Jesus has been talking about the peril of false disciples. Those who don't really follow him. And and what is that peril? He speaks of the peril of hell, verse 45. Hell, the unquenchable fire, verse 43. Hell, well, where souls are barred from the kingdom of God, verse 47. And hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, verse 48. He talks a lot about hell. It sounds pretty serious. So many people don't want to talk about this, don't want to hear about it, stick their head in the sand. It's like, it'll go away if we don't think about it. But there's a reason Jesus spoke more about hell than heaven. Because people really need to be warned. And at the same time, though, this brings up so many questions. Don't you have questions? I mean, what what really is hell? Is it a real place or not? Is this fire real or not? Is it really eternal or not? And who really goes there and who doesn't? It brings up a lot of questions and we kind of want those answers. So in reality, though, when Jesus talks about this, Far from skipping it, we should be spending more time studying and heeding his words of warning on hell. And that's precisely what we're going to do next week. We're already out of time. But next week, next week we're going to come back and we're going to devote the entire time to studying and talking about what Jesus said about hell. It doesn't sound like fun. Let's face it, it's not fun. But neither is going to the doctor and hearing bad news. It's not fun. But until you reckon with the bad news, you're not going to appreciate the good news, the cure, the gospel. And so we have to. We can't afford to skip these words. So all that is to say, don't miss next week. But for now, let me just bring our thoughts back to Mark 9 here in this picture of true discipleship. Overall, what, what Jesus is doing is just simply to continue, or simply continuing to paint the picture of true discipleship as radical discipleship. What he says, it might sound so crazy, but it's really nothing new. He's already given us this picture of radical discipleship. You want to follow me, then deny yourself, take up your cross. That's radical discipleship. He said, if you want to follow me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It means you love him so much that everything else seems like hatred. It's radical discipleship. And here in Mark 9, it's really more the same. If you're his true disciple, he has a total claim on your life. And he wants a holy life. 
wants you to be pure. So what do you do? Don't stumble others. Seek purity in the lives of others and in your own life. If you've got sin in your life, cut it off. There's no messing around with sin on his way. God desires your pure devotion. God desires it so much that sometimes he'll even send some fire your way to test you, to purify you. It's not going to consume you. You don't have to fear, but you will be refined. And as you endure, it's actually going to enable you to reach the world better. You've got a purpose to reach the world through word, through deed, living as salt, living as light. The world is watching you, so let them see your, your distinct flavor, your righteousness, your holiness, your salt. Let them see your peace. And as they see it, may they be drawn to the Lord of, of peace. And so true discipleship is radical. And when Jesus said it the first time, a lot of people walked away. They, they didn't want any part of it. They just walked away. And I pray that's not your response. May you respond to his radical words like Peter. Right after the crowds left, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, you guys want to leave too? And Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So where are we going to go? Let's pray. Lord God, we pray you strengthen our resolve this morning to follow you on the way. It's the way of eternal life. It's the way of forgiveness and redemption, reconciliation, just an eternal blessing. It's, it's a good way. But the path can be hard. We, we follow the same path that Jesus tread of discipleship. And he showed us the way that there's suffering involved sometimes. The cross comes before the crown. We must forsake sin and self, endure suffering. It can be difficult. But Lord, the other way is far worse. And we know this. Convict us that Christ's way is the blessed way. And it comes with, with peace and joy and, and a new life. So, again, strengthen our resolve to be on this way. Convince us that this is the way to go and, and that you know, if any here are, are living still an old life, they're still walking down the path of sin. They don't turn. They don't know. Convict them, Lord. It is not too late for them to turn back from the cliff with the washed-out shore before they fall to their peril. And may they heed this warning from Jesus himself, from his own words. Uh, that's not the way you want to go. Show us your grace and your mercy. Continue to, to drive us on the right way. As we stumble, forgive us and get us back on path. If any here are in the midst of stumbling, Lord, uh, correct them with your word. May we be a pure people. I pray that Bringing Bible Church can be real lights to the world, that we can be the salt of the earth. Even in this little community that we can show a distinct peace, a distinct holiness, a distinct love for one another, for the Lord, and that this community can be drawn to you through our witness, through our word, and through our deed. And we want to lift you up in praise. We thank you for our time again this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.